Job 36. These two chapters we'll look at today, chapters 36 and 37, we come to the fourth and final speech of Elihu. And I, for one, am glad of it. Because after such a promising beginning, in which you could sense that he had compassion toward Job, in which he separated the issue from the individual, something that the three friends had not done, in which he spoke of the constructive nature of suffering, it isn't always destructive. And he asserted that Job in his suffering was not suffering alone. But then in chapter 34, in his second speech, he makes a radical turn. And he makes two significant errors that we saw last Sunday. First of all, he believed that God's secret purpose in his providence, why God allows or causes things to happen, that we could discover this by human wisdom. I would argue that we cannot. He also felt that he had to defend God, and he does this against what he perceives are attacks by Job. Um, that Elihu is wrong here, I think, is demonstrated not so much, I mean, certainly in the arguments that he makes, I think he's wrong. But his attitude toward Job, I think, reveals that, in fact, he is wrong in this. He not only accuses Job of knowing nothing, but Elihu wishes that Job would suffer even more. He says Job speaks without knowledge. His words lack insight. Oh, that Job might be tested to the utmost for answering like a wicked man. In the third speech, Elihu tackles two issues. What does a person gain by not sinning? And secondly, why doesn't God answer our prayers? He gives two answers to the first question, and neither of them is satisfactory. On the one hand, he attempts to make the transcendent God so far away from us that he is untouchable by human sin that our sins or our righteousness do not, in fact, affect God. On the other hand, he limits the consequences of sin to the human situation. Yes, God does not become less holy or less righteous because of our sin. But our sin does affect him. He is grieved when we sin against him. I mean, just read the scripture. Um, as early as Genesis 6, God is grieved that he had made man and decides to send the flood. Paul tells us that we are not to grieve the Holy Spirit. In the parables of Jesus, we hear that there is rejoicing in heaven over the return of one sinner. So Elihu is wrong there. On the second question, I think it's something that all of us have asked at one time or another in our life, why doesn't God answer my prayers? Elihu has a series of answers. It's because of pride. Job, you're full of pride. That's why God hasn't answered you. You have wrong motives and you lack faith. If you look at this, what Elihu is saying basically is that God is one who is manageable, he is predictable, and we can understand what he's doing. God's ways are clear, at least to Elihu. That if you are humble, if you have the right motives, if you have faith, God must answer your prayers in the affirmative. In other words, you can manipulate him. Just make sure that you're humble, you're not full of pride, that you have the right motives, that you have faith. 
at least two things come to mind for me. Which one of us can claim to have prayed in all humility, with the right motives, and with faith? I think our best efforts, let's be honest, our best efforts and our prayers are tainted by the fact that we are fallen and that we are sinners. So I don't think any one of us can say, yes, I can pray in all humility and with the right motives um, that I have pure faith. I remember reading many years ago Edith Schaefer's uh, book on the Brie, and she talked about the fact that uh, her son Frankie was afflicted with polio and uh, they were in Switzerland, uh, her husband was somewhere else, and so she was having to make decisions on her own, and they wanted to try an experimental treatment. Uh, this is back in the early 50s, when we didn't know as much about polio as we do now. And she said she prayed all night, and I, I'll never forget, she said something. She said, I can't claim that my motives were pure. And I was like, wait a minute, you're praying for your child? Your child to be healed? How can your motives not be pure? Well think she recognized what we should, what Elihu should have, and that is that none of us have entirely pure motives. Another thing that comes to mind is, if you can't predict the weather, how can you predict what God is going to do? If you cannot predict something in creation, how can you then claim to be able to, cre- uh, to predict the creator? How is the God of all creation to be seen as Yeah, I know exactly what he's going to do or why he has done this. I read this last week, a quote from a commentator. There is a wildness to the divine ordering of things which the Elihus of this world cannot stand. Elihu cannot bear very much reality. Elihu's God is too tidy and too small. Let's face it. It doesn't always make sense. But for Elihu and the three friends, it has to. Because if it doesn't, then, well, something's seriously wrong. Now we come to the fourth and final speech. And here Elihu continues to speak about the nature of God. When I was a child, there was a prayer that children were taught. I don't know if they still are. Before meals, that grace would be said. And the child would say, God is great. God is good. Now we thank him for our food. Well, in these last two speeches, Elihu will tell us that God is good and God is great. He says some very good things, by the way. He creates a classroom-like setting. He is the teacher, but he is speaking on God's behalf. So that God is actually the teacher, but he's speaking through Elihu. And yet that's not quite right because Elihu claims to have knowledge of his own. Let's look at this together. First of all, he presents his credentials. He's in front of the class. This is, he's the teacher. This is why Job should listen to him. Verses 1 through 4. Elihu continued, Bear with me a little longer and I will show you that there is more to be said in God's behalf. I get my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe justice to my maker. Be assured that my words are not false. One perfect in knowledge is with you. <laughs> that last line, if nothing else, I am perfect in knowledge. Just, just sit back and listen, Job, because I know what I'm talking about. Because of his aged and perceived inexperience, Elihu suffers from a lack of credentials. We've seen this as we began looking at Elihu's four speeches. 
So what qualifies him to speak? I mean, while the other three friends spoke, he was quiet, and when they have nothing else to say, he finally speaks up. What qualifies him to be a teacher? Why should Job listen to him? Why should the friends listen to him? Because he corrects them as well. Why should the bystanders listen? Well, in presenting his credentials, Elihu comes across, let's face it, as arrogant. He says, in fact, I'm going to speak on God's behalf. There's more to be said on God's behalf, verse number two. And, in fact, perfect knowledge, one with perfect knowledge is with you. His teaching will be extensive. I get my knowledge from afar. His approach will be humble. It's like, remember hearing years ago, someone wrote a book. This is not true, but someone is said wrote a book, Humility and How I Got It. Uh, this is Elihu. His teaching will be true. Rest assured, my words are true, not false. And his teaching will be comprehensive. I've got complete and perfect knowledge. We believe, as God's people, that God's word is found in Scripture, that it is unchanging. But we must also be quick to confess that our interpretation, our understanding of it, is in fact tainted. I have in my notes, may be tainted. No, our views are. We're fallen. We are sinners. We have prejudices. We grow up in a particular cultural context. We live and breathe the culture that is around us. So God has spoken through Scripture. We affirm that. We hold that to be true. And we say that we believe what Scripture says is true. And yet, let's be humble enough to admit that we don't always get it right. We walk, as I said last week, a razor's edge here. Years ago, actually 17 years ago in 2003, there was an article in the religious section of the LA Times. I don't think the Times has a religion section anymore. But there was a brief article on the Southern Baptist Convention, which was meeting in Phoenix, their annual meeting. And in this meeting, they defended its right to proclaim their religion as the only path to salvation, and thus the right to evangelize and to seek to convert others. Well, Abraham H. Foxman, National Director of the Anti-Defamation League, responded, quote, We have said many times that it is pure arrogance for any one religion to assume that they hold the truth. The Southern Baptist leadership clearly has not gotten the message. Unfortunately, at a time when many faiths have moved closer toward mutual respect and understanding, the Southern Baptist leadership continues their backward slide. I think Mr. Foxman wants a certain humility, but at the same time, if in fact he does not believe that his religious faith is true, why is he holding on to it? Why would you hold on to something if in fact you did not believe it, tr it was true? And why wouldn't you try to persuade others? Well, you wouldn't try to persuade them if you weren't convinced it was true. There has to be humility, and we don't hear this in Elihu. So here in the final speech, we're already sort of backing up a bit because we're a bit concerned about what he's going to say. So he's going to review now in verses 5 through 15. He's a good teacher. Repetition, review. That's what he does here. Look at verse 5. Uh, 
God is mighty, but does not despise men. He is mighty and firm in his purpose. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their rights. He does not take his eyes off the righteous. He enthrones them with kings and exalts them forever. But if men are bound in chains, held fast by cords of affliction, he tells them what they have done, that they have sinned arrogantly. He makes them listen to correction and commands them to repent of their evil. If they obey and serve him, they will spend the rest of their days in prosperity and their years in contentment. But if they do not listen, they will perish by the sword and die without knowledge. The godless in heart harbor resentment. Even when he fetters them, they do not cry for help. They die in their youth among male prostitutes of the shrines. But those who suffer, he delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. Now, it would seem, and some would argue, some have argued, that what Elihu is doing here is just repeating what the other three friends have said, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Okay. But I, what we've seen so far is that he adds his own two cents worth, if you wish, to what's being said. And what he says, and we've seen this before, is that suffering is not entirely negative. It can, in fact, have a creative purpose as well as a destructive purpose. So he does repeat what the friends have said, but now he has his own insight. And what we hear is that God is mighty, but in his strength, he doesn't despise human beings. He doesn't pres- does not preserve the wicked, and he gives justice to the oppressed. And he keeps watch over the righteous. So already we're beginning to see that he's going into the, the, the direction of Job, uh, you're wicked. Because God takes care of the righteous, and and obviously he hasn't taken care of you. If they are afflicted, again implied, but not stated, he shows them their sin, verse number 9. He opens their ears to instruction, verse 10. He commands them to repent, verse 10 as well. So the righteous have a choice. They can obey and serve God, and then they get all they want. They will have prosperity and pleasure. Again, this is, this is satanic. <laughs> this is what Satan said back in chapter 1. This is why God serves you. God, it's because you give him all these wonderful things. If they do not obey, they will perish by the sword. And if they do not repent, they will die like the unrighteous. So, what he's saying, unlike the three friends, is that suffering has a purpose. The affliction of God's people... So he, he still includes Job among God's people, not among the wicked, but amongst God's people. It, in fact, has a purpose, that God's people don't go through affliction alone. I don't know if Elihu has recognized it or if you have, but he's just contradicted what he said in his third speech. In his third speech, he said, in fact, that God is distant and indifferent. God doesn't care. And now in the fourth speech, he's sort of done a 180, and he's saying God does care. Um, Elihu, make up your mind. Now he wants to motivate the student. If you're a teacher, you've got to get them pumped up. You've got to get them to, you know, to want to learn. And you can do it one of two ways. You can either praise them, okay, uh, a positive reinforcement, or not, and... Elihu doesn't take the positive route. Look at verse 16. 
He is wooing you from the jaws of distress to a spacious place free from restriction, to the comfort of your table laden with choice food. But now you are laden with the judgment due the wicked. Judgment and justice have taken hold of you. Be careful that no one entices you by riches. Do not let a large bribe turn you aside. Would your wealth or even all your mighty efforts sustain you so that you would not be in distress? Do not long for the night to drag people away from their homes. Beware of turning to evil, which you seem to prefer to affliction. There is no single way to motivate. I'm sorry, that's it, of affliction. There is, in fact, no single way to motivate people. You can either do it positively or negatively. You can either warn them, if you don't learn this, something bad's going to happen to you. Or you can say, listen, you're getting it, slowly but surely you're learning this. Yet Elihu, it's warning. He warns him of the, the consequences, the bitterness that will come because if he does not repent. He warns him of making judgments as though he were God. And on this we might say, well, Elihu, you've got a point there. Because it does seem that Job at certain points has almost argued that he knows better than God. And he warns him of any self, a sense of self-sufficiency, which is the reason God can't teach him. If you think you are self-sufficient, then what, what does God have to teach you? And if Job does something about these for all of God's goodness, if Job doesn't do this, then in fact, for all of God's goodness, and God is good, it's not going to benefit Job at all. Verses 22 and 23, again, a good teacher will ask questions. God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him who has prescribed his ways for him or said to him, you have done wrong? In every classroom situation, this should be a time for questions. And here it is not the, te- the students asking the teacher, it is the teacher asking the student. Who is a teacher like God? God is the best teacher possible, Job. Elihu is saying. And who has ever told God what he can and cannot do? And who can correct him? The answer to all three questions is no one. Because God is good. And God is great. And this is the next thing that Elihu looks at. This is far longer. This goes from chapter 36, 24 to chapter 37, 24. Bear with me. He continues in the same vein in verses 24, 25, and 26. Remember to extol his work, which men have praised in song. All mankind has seen it. Men gaze on it from afar. How great is God beyond our understanding. The number of his years past finding out. The key line here is in verse 26. How great is God beyond our understanding. We've already been told that there's no teacher like him. He's the one who can teach us through affliction. Now, he's shifted a bit from God is good to now God is great. And this is what Elihu wants to sort of emphasize to Job. Let's read verses 26 of chapter 36, and we'll read through chapter 37, verse 13. Remember that the chapter divisions are artificial. This this isn't the way scripture is written. So it seems like we're crossing a line here, crossing a border. We're not, okay? Verse uh, 
let's see, 27. I'm sorry, starting verse 27. He draws up the drops of water, which distill, uh, distill as rain to the streams. The clouds pour down their moisture, and abundant showers fall on mankind. Who can understand how he spreads out the clouds, how he thunders from his pavilion? See how he scatters his lightning about him, bathing the depths of the sea. This is how he governs the nations and provides food in abundance. He fills his hands with lightning and commands it to strike its mark. His thunder announces the coming storm. Even the cattle make known its approach. At this, my heart pounds and leaps from its place. Listen. Listen to the roar of his voice, to the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He unleashes his lightning beneath the whole heaven. He sends it to the ends of the earth. After that comes the sound of his roar. He thunders with, his, with majestic voice. When his voice resounds, he holds nothing back. God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. He says to the snow fall on the earth and to the rain shower be a mighty downpour so that all men he has made may know his work. He stops every man from his labor. The animals take over. They remain in their dens. I'm sorry, the animals take cover. They remain in their dens. The tempest comes out from its chamber, the cold from the driving winds. The breath of God produces ice, and the broad waters become frozen. He loads the clouds with moisture. He scatters his lightning through them. At his direction, they swirl around over the face of the whole earth to do whatever he commands them. He brings the clouds to punish men or to water his earth and show his love. Elihu does something here that we find throughout Scripture. That the beginning of point of worship oftentimes is to sing of God's work. For example, in Revelation 15, those who have been victorious over death, over beast, sing the song of Moses. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Elihu begins, remember to extol his work, which men have praised in song. All mankind has seen it, men gaze on it from afar. The focus of Elihu's illustration of God's greatness. How do we know that God is great? Look at creation. Look at God's creation. And in this amazing passage, for all the negative things I would say about Elihu, this is an amazing passage. We find three points. That first of all, God is the creator of all things. Side note, the key to all wisdom literature in the Old Testament, that's Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, part of Psalms, is that God is the creator. It's foundational. Secondly, God is the controller of all. This is the focus. And in fact, it might reside, uh, result in paralyzing fear. If you look at verse number one of chapter 37, you might not connect it with the last verse of 36. In 36, he ends by talking about thunder, and in verse number one, he jumps. Well, who hasn't jumped at thunder? You know, when it's really loud. Um, yeah, God is in control. But rather than being frozen in fear, we in fact should be confident that God is in control. And the third thing is that God has a purpose. He has a cause for all of this. It is to correct his people. It is to water his earth. 
because it's not all about us. There's other parts to creation. It's not just his people and to show his love. Now it's time to question the student. You've presented the material. Now ask Job the question. Verse 14. Listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash? Do you know how the clouds hang poised, those wonders of him who is perfect in knowledge? You who swelter in your clothes when the land lies hushed under the south wind, can you join him in spreading out the skies, hard as a mirror of cast bronze? To evaluate, see whether or not the student, that is Job, has learned what Elihu, the teacher, has been trying to teach him, he asks a series of questions. Do you know when God dispatches his wondrous works? Do you know what causes the lightning to flash? Do you know how the clouds are balanced? Do you know why your clothes get hot? Do you know when he quiets the earth with a south wind? Do you know who spreads out the skies? Now this is one of the difficult things about studying the book of Job today. Because some people would say, yes, in fact, I do know the answer to that question. Well, I would suggest that you might know some of the answers to some of the questions, but you don't know everything. Let's make the application. So the material's been given, the questions have been asked of the student, now let's make the application. Verse 19, tell us what we should say to him. We cannot drop our case because of our darkness. Should he be told that I want to speak? Would any man ask to be swallowed up? Now no one can look at the sun, bright as it is in the skies, after the wind has swept them clean. Out of the north he comes in golden splendor. God comes in awesome majesty. The Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. In his justice and great righteousness he does not oppress. Therefore men revere him. For does he not have regard for all the wise in heart? Job, or Elihu wants the roles to be reversed. He now wants Job to be the teacher. Okay, I've been teaching you. I've asked you questions. Now, Job, okay, you tell me. You tell me the answer to these questions. Apparently, Job has nothing to say because we don't hear anything from him until chapter 42. Elihu ends his speeches with words like golden splendor, awesome majesty, great righteousness. Elihu may have made some mistakes in his speeches, but boy, he does seem to get the goodness and the greatness of God right. Elihu is really important for the book of Job. The book of Job would not be complete without these four speeches. I've suggested when we began looking at his speeches that there are a number of reasons why he's important. And the one reason that I keep repeating, and I will say it again, is that the last time Job speaks, we don't then hear God answering him in chapter 38. We have, in fact, this buffer, if you wish, in which Elihu speaks to Job. And so that Job would not think, and we would not think, yeah, if I just get angry enough and frustrated enough, then God will have to answer me. He 
God will have to speak to me. And no, that's not the case. I think one of his big contributions to the wisdom literature is that he has really reshaped what the three friends have been saying. They've been saying, in fact, you did something wrong. That's why these things have happened to you. And while he accepts the possibility that, in fact, a righteous person may suffer, they say you suffer because you did something wrong. And he says, no, God, in fact, may have a creative purpose. God may have a reason for this. Now, he claims to know what that reason is, and on that he's wrong. But he really reshapes because otherwise, if we only had the three friends, we would have the sense that people suffer because they've done wrong. Cause and effect, pure cause and effect. And the reality is, the reality is that God does things that we cannot understand. God uses suffering to instruct a person, Elihu tells us. He may, in fact, in mercy, reach out and afflict someone, but it is, it is not to punish this person. It isn't because they've done something wrong. It is because God, in fact, wants to teach them. In Job's case, it means that what he has been through, the loss of everything, and the things he has suffered, the terrifying nightmares, the seizures, his skin turning black and being cracked. Elihu argues that in fact this may be God's mercy as God seeks to correct Job, to rescue him from falling into deeper sin. Well, Job hasn't sinned, so Elihu's got that part wrong, but he has gotten right that in fact God can use the things we go through to teach us because he is merciful. Elihu doesn't deal with Job's past, whereas the friends did. He deals with the present. He doesn't look for some great sin that Job may have committed, and that's why these things have happened to him. He's more concerned with what Job has said in complaining to God for all that he is suffering. Job may not have suffered, or he may not have done anything wrong to be afflicted by God. But he must, Elihu would argue, obediently accept God's discipline. Elihu is afraid for Job. Unlike the friends, he is not accusing him of, of something. But he is afraid that Job, in complaining against God, has crossed a line. That he has complained that God is unjust for allowing these things to happen to him. That God, in fact, fails to govern the world with justice. And that Job maintains, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. Elihu is warning him that if he does not abandon his complaint and confess his pride, that's not in the olden days, that's during these conversations that in fact he may suffer even more and it may even lead to his death. To restate what Elihu tells Job, the reasons for suffering is to correct those who have gone astray, 
to rescue those whom God loves and to test the loyalty of those who are in relationship with God. I said at the beginning, I'm sort of glad we got to this fourth and final speech because it's like you're just going down the same path. But in fact, it prepares us for what comes next. Chapter 38 opens with these words. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. And thus begins the last part of the book of Job, in which out of the storm God addresses Job. The last time we heard Job was in chapter 31. It was a long defense of injustification of himself. He was rather defiant against God. He insisted on interpreting his afflictions as a mark of God's displeasure. And since Job knew that he was innocent, then God had gotten something seriously wrong. Job demanded that God acknowledge his integrity, Job's integrity, that he remove his shame, and that he restore his reputation in the community. God now speaks, and in doing so, he in fact fulfills Job's deepest desire. That God is not silent. You may remember that early on in chapter 3, in Job's primal scream, Job said, what I have feared or what I feared has come upon me, what I have dreaded has happened to me. This is interesting in reading through various commentators. I don't claim to be inspired, but I think they get this wrong. Job's not, he's not talking about the loss of his children. He's not talking about the loss of his possessions, the loss of his health, but the loss of his God. That the God he had been worshiping all these years suddenly turns out to be some, someone completely different than what Job thought. He said to Eliphaz in chapter 23, if only I knew where to find him, if only I could go to his dwelling, but if I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. And yet God has been there all along. He has been present all along. I think we hear this from Elihu. I don't know that Job is listening though. But now God comes and speaks to Job. Not because he's been forced to. Okay, Job, you're angry enough, you're defiant enough, I'll give in, I'll talk to you. But out of his concern for Job. It is because God loves Job that he finally speaks. And as we will see, the Lord willing, in the weeks to come, God does not address Job's complaints. He ignores them. He doesn't respond to Job's claim of innocence. And he does not correct Job for some wrongdoing, as the friends probably would have expected. God will correct the friends, but not Job. Instead, the Lord addresses Job as a teacher does a student, and he doesn't deal with a specific problem as such, like, is this going to be on the test kind of issue, okay? But rather, he seeks to open Job's mind to a new way of understanding. And he will do this in the chapters that follow. And how does God do this? It's very much like what Elihu's just done. God will point to creation his creation, and say, Job, do you know about this? 
did you do this? Were you there when this all started? And then Job's eyes are opened. And may ours be as well. Let's pray together. Father, for all the problems we may have with Elihu, we are grateful for what we have heard him say today. Words that in this pandemic we need to hear, that you are great, that you are good. We may wonder if you're so great, why is this terrible thing happening? Why don't you stop it? And if you're good, why don't you stop it? It seems that an all-loving, all-powerful God would intervene. The reality is you are God and we're not. You know all things we don't. And you have a purpose in all things. I fear that at this point we are more like Job. Yet he was innocent. I don't think we can claim such innocence. I don't think our nation can claim such innocence. Our world cannot claim to be innocent. It has turned its back on you. And yet they want you to be great and good. We ask by your spirit you would drive these truths home to our hearts. At a time when we as a nation are to be thankful with thanksgiving, may we remember to be thankful. We do not worship you so that we can have an easy, hassle-free life. We worship you because you are the Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. You are the creator. And by your grace, through your son, you have redeemed us. Our time here on earth is limited. And yet somehow we expect something different. Forgive us. Help us to trust you. To know that, in fact, you do love us dearly. And you've proved that love over and over again, but supremely by sending your son. I ask that you would keep us by your grace in the coming days, that we would have a sense of your presence wherever we are, in dark times and in good times. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending the Lord Jesus and for giving us the gift of your spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.